Good morning. I like a little more response. I'm sorry. Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bible this morning, or if not, it's in the bulletin, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 13 through verse 23. While you're turning, I just want to say it was a joy to be here. The ride wasn't as bad as I originally assumed it was going to be. So uh, it's very good, but I appreciate coming and being with you this morning. Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. It reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have an everlasting word that pierces our hearts and makes us new. And now, Lord, this morning, I ask you to help me. Help me as I preach your word. And as John the Baptist would say, that I would decrease so that you and your word may increase. So, Spirit, be with us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus asked Peter a question that has to continually be asked generation after generation, after generation. What do people say about me? Who do people say that I am? Well, the disciples started answering what the society and the culture around them says. Some say maybe John the Baptist has come back to life, and that's who you are. Others say you're one of the prophets. Maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you're Jeremiah. question before us is, what does our culture say about Jesus? Who do the people around us say about this Christ? The reality is, some folks don't even talk about Him. Because some don't even think He even existed. Others believe He did exist, He was a historical figure, but 
He wasn't God, just a good moral teacher, maybe a philosopher, the starter of a religion that lasted for generations. That's the question before us today. What do people say about Jesus? But Jesus, you can almost feel Jesus walking in closer to his disciples, leaning in closer. I know what other people say about Jesus, but let me ask you, who do you say that I am? I know what other people say, but what do you say about me? And Peter, as the voice of the disciples, answers correctly. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are the anointed Messiah that we, as the Jewish people, have been waiting for. You are the Christ. William Hendrickson, he writes, when Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, he means the long-awaited anointed one, the one who as mediator was set apart and ordained by the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be his people's chief prophet, the only high priest and eternal king. He goes on and says, Peter's de declaration that Jesus is the son of the living God can mean no less than that in a unique sense, a sense not applicable to any mortal. Jesus is, was, and always will be the son of that God who not only is himself the only living one over against all the dead so-called gods of the pagan, but also is the only source of life for all that lives. This is what Peter was saying about Jesus. And this is what we confess. Every Sunday we confess this Jesus, whether we do it through the Apostles' Creed, whether we do it through the Nicene Creed, or whether we're confessing the Westminster Confession of Faith. We are proclaiming to ourselves and the world, this is what we believe about Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He's the Son of the living God. Jesus doesn't let Peter go too far before he humbles him. He says, Peter, you're right, but let me tell you, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not give this to you. My Father gave this to you. This was Jesus' way of saying, Peter, you didn't get it from yourself nor did you get it from any other human endeavor. The only way you know that Jesus is the Christ is because my Father has given it to you. Peter, you didn't get this from yourself. And I love the play on words that Jesus, he says, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, or other translators would say Simon, son of John. That's who you are. You have a father, but let me explain. My father was the one who gave this to you. My father was the one who imparted this great wisdom to you. And that's a message for us today. We don't rightly confess Jesus on our own terms. We don't rightly confess Jesus because we are wiser or smarter or more righteous. The only reason we confess Jesus rightly is because God has given that to us. 
in His sovereignty, has chosen to reveal that confession to us. We live in a day and age where people think, and we think, and I do it myself, that we've gotten to places on our own. That we've arrived on our own. This is probably seen the worst or the best, if you want to put it that way, and the greatest basketball player to ever live. And if anybody says LeBron, you're wrong. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was my favorite player growing up. I, every Christmas, I begged my mother and my grandmother to get me a pair of Jordans. And they spent that, well, it went from 100 to 125 to 150. Then I started buying my own, and I stopped buying them because they're too expensive. <laughs> Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player to ever live. Have you ever heard his Hall of Fame speech? It's the worst speech I've ever heard. It, I mean, the worst. He spent the majority of his time telling the crowd how great he was. He spent time telling the crowd how hard he worked to get himself where he was. It was the worst speech I have ever heard. Now, the crazy part is, can I tell you my favorite Hall of Fame speech? My favorite Hall of Fame speech from one of the weirdest players, Dennis Rodman. <laughs> crazy Dennis Rodman had one of the greatest Hall of Fame speeches I've ever heard. He spent half the time crying because he knew how he was so sorrowful for the way he treated his family and others. And then he spent time just thanking people thanking coaches that put up with him, thanking teammates who helped him, thanking leaders who helped him get where he was, thanking his family. I thought I would never say this from the pulpit, but we need to be more like Dennis Rodman and less like Jordan. Because <laughs> Rodman knew he didn't get here on his own. All his faults and his failures, he knew I didn't get here on my own. And that's what Jesus is telling us. And that's what he's telling Peter. You didn't get here on your own. Thank the Lord that you confess rightly because I gave it to you. You know, as I think about the fact that we don't arrive to this great confession on our own, that we don't arrive to knowing Jesus on our own, I think about the way in which we interact with the unbelievers. How do we interact with unbelievers? You know, Daniel Doriani, he writes, secular people, and I think we think this way sometimes too, tend to think that they can find religious, moral, and philosophical truth by turning inward toward the inner voice and the heart's subjective impression. In layman terms, he says, we're navel gazers. We try to find truth within ourselves. The unbeliever and the secularist tries to find truth within themselves. But can I talk to us Christians for a second? If we know this about the unbeliever, and we know that it's only by grace that we know who Jesus is, why is it that sometimes we get upset when an unbeliever doesn't believe? We get 
upset that when we preach the gospel to them, they don't get it. Why don't you understand how good this gospel is? I think it's because we forget that we didn't get here on our own. When we tell our friends and our family members, co-workers, whoever, about who Jesus is, we, we tell them and then we leave it up to the Lord because we know only God can bring them to that place. Only God can make them confess rightly. Because we have to remind ourselves we didn't get here on our own. Just like Peter, we are blessed. We are blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to us. We are blessed because our Father in heaven has told us rightly who this Jesus is. Jesus humbles Peter, but then Jesus commends Peter. He says, Peter, you're Peter, nicknamed Rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are several options on what this means. And I don't want to stay here long because I really want to focus on Peter and how jacked up he was. But you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Here's several options we have on what in the world is Jesus talking about. The one option is the rock in which the church is built off of is Peter himself. Now, that's the Roman Catholic view. That Peter is the first pope, and on him is the church built. We don't hold to that. The other option is that Peter's statement about who Jesus is, that's the rock that the church is built off. That's true, but I think it's incomplete. Another option is that Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. True, but I think there's a little bit more. Is that Peter, as a spokesperson for the disciples, that Jesus is saying, on the word that you state, on Jesus himself, and on the teaching of the apostles, I will build my church. And Peter, the blessed one who rightly confesses Jesus, him and the apostles, Jesus is saying, on this I will build my church. Jesus humbles Peter, but he commends Peter. Well, the sermon will probably go downhill. It only took two verses. Two verses. Peter goes from a man of faith. Two verses later. Peter goes from the best to the worst. Two verses later, Peter goes from the rock on which the church is built to a stone of offense. Two verses. Can I ask a question? How long will it take for us? How long? How long will it take for us to go from the best to the worst? I probably won't get back to New Jersey before I mess up. But how long will it take us before we leave this service where we confess Jesus rightly? We sing the praises to Jesus. How long will it take us before we mumble 
grumble and complain? How long will it take us where we forget the confession we make this morning? How long will it take before we argue with our spouse? How long will it take before we are quick-tempered with our children? How long will it take before we forget the grace that is given to us? How long? Dr. Martin Luther King had one of his sermons. He says, how long? Not long. Peter goes from the great confession to getting rebuked by Jesus. Peter oversteps his boundaries and he tries to go from being the student to the teacher. From the one who confesses rightly to now telling the Messiah himself what the Messiah is going to do. No, Jesus, you, you're not going to die. You, you, you're not going to go to the cross. When you think about it, what Peter says is not necessarily evil, though. I think if we were in Peter's shoes, we'd probably say something similar. We, if you're a Jewish, you're waiting for the Messiah to come. This political figure who would, who would take care of the people of the Jews, who would defeat all the enemies. And, and if you're the Messiah, a great political figure to defeat the enemies, you can't die. So we can't get mad at Peter. We can't turn our noses up at Peter because we'd probably say something quite similar to what Peter is saying. Jesus, you, you can't die. We, we need you. You can't, you can't die. But what Peter is saying is not necessarily evil in the way we see it. It's not evil, but it's got Satan written all over it. And there's things that we say and do, ways in which we live that are not necessarily evil. But it's got the finger of Satan written all over it. How do we talk about our marriages? I just want to, you know, I just want a happy marriage. Somebody make me feel good. We can make good money and go on vacation. That's, that's not evil. That's not bad, but that's not the way Scripture talks about marriage. I just want my kids to be good kids. Good citizens. Go to college and, and get a good job, get a career, make good money, make me proud as a grandparent. That's, that's not bad. That's not evil. But that's not the way Scripture talks about children. I want a good career. Make good money. Have a good retirement. Make sure my 401k is looking good. That's, that's not evil. That's not the way the scriptures talk about our vocation. They don't seem evil, but they're incomplete. They don't seem wicked, but Satan can trap us into thinking that that's all there is. The scriptures tell us, and Jesus tells us, and our confession tells us, out of all of that, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God, enjoying Him forever. All the marriages and all the children, all the careers, as good as they may be, if they lack glorifying God, it's got Satan written all over it. We sound like Peter. He doesn't say anything bad, but boy, is it satanic. 
You know, Peter also wants what we want. He wants a life without sacrifice. He wants a Jesus without sacrifice. Jesus corrects him the next verse that we didn't read in verse 24. He says, listen, if anybody wants to come after me, you got to take up your cross and you got to follow me. Peter wants a life without sacrifice. He wants a religion without sacrifice. But more importantly, more importantly, what Peter wants is a Christ without a cross. He wants to get Jesus away from the cross. And what does Jesus tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus has seen this before. Jesus has seen this game before. He, he knows where this is coming come from. In Matthew 4, he's already dealt with Satan. Satan's tried to tempt him. Just bow down to me. Don't go to the cross, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I know where this is coming from. Jesus' is, his Christness and his crossness are to never be separated. His position as Messiah and his death are always connected. His Christness and his crossness go hand in hand. Whether it's from Isaiah 53, which we read this morning, his Christness and his crossness are always connected. Whether it's Acts chapter 3, but it was foretold by God, by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, and it was fulfilled. Whether it's Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Whether it's Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, set his face toward the cross. Gospel singer Hezekiah Walker has a Christmas song and sings it this way. He was born to die. Jesus' Christness and his crossness are always interconnected. The reality is, we would love a Christianity without the cross. A Christianity without the cross would be reasonable. A reasonable religion. I tell you, it'll make evangelism a lot easier if we didn't have a cross. If we can just tell folks, become a Christian and your life will get a little bit better. Become a Christian, your marriage will do greater. Become a Christian, your pockets will get fatter. Become a Christian and, and all your questions get answered. It, it'd be a lot easier to share the gospel if it didn't have no gospel. We want sometimes to have a religion without the cross. Paul knew this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this cross, it's a stumbling block to the Jew. Foolishness to the Gentile. This cross that we preach, it's a stumbling block to the religious. We don't need the cross. We just need rules and laws and and somebody to tell us how to get by day every day. We don't want the cross. It's a stumbling block when you're religious. But if you're not religious, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. 
Man, have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody and you start talking about sin? Sin? What's, what's sin? I mess up sometimes with sin. Who am I sinning against? Ain't, ain't no God to sin against. I just I mess up. It's foolishness. And even if you get somebody to understand that they are jacked up, you start talking about a cross. You need Jesus to forgive you. And he doesn't forgive with a magic wand. He dies for your forgiveness. It's unreasonable. It's foolishness. It'd be easier if we had a Christianity without a cross. But if we don't have a cross, we don't have a Christ. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. I know where this is coming from. It's funny that Jesus tells Peter, when you confessed rightly, it didn't come from you. My Father gave it to you. When Peter now confesses wrongly, he says, get behind me, Satan. Almost to tell us that we are always being swayed by somebody else. We're always being moved by somebody else. You're either listening to the Lord or we're listening to Satan. This is what Jesus is telling Peter. With all that said, I'm still glad that we have a Jesus that went to the cross. We have a Jesus that bore our sin, but we have a Jesus that is all wise. All understanding, all knowing. We have a Jesus who tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. He tells him because he knows, as Paul would write, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. I know where this came from. And Jesus, in his wisdom, he humbles Peter. Jesus, in his love, then blesses Peter. Jesus then corrects Peter. And that's what Jesus does to us. When we confess Jesus rightly, He pronounces great blessing over us. When we get too big-headed on thinking that we know where we confess this from, He'll humble us. When we get out of line, Jesus corrects us and rebukes us. I'm glad the story of Peter doesn't end there. Peter will jack up again. He'll deny Jesus three times. And I'm sure if there were more stories, if the Gospels were longer, we'd see Peter jack up more and more. But I'm glad we've got a Jesus that keeps us. Because we fail. We jack up. We will leave here confessing rightly and then leave and jack up. But we have a Jesus who keeps us. No, behind the door of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is the doctrine of the perseverance of God. The only reason we persevere in the faith 
with our ups and our downs, our highs and our lows. The only reason we persevere is because God perseveres with us. We are glad to have a Jesus who humbles and corrects us and rebukes us. But we're glad this morning that we have a Jesus that keeps us. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is my first time here. I don't know who is or who isn't. Can I say to you this morning, we have a Jesus that keeps us. You will fail, but he doesn't. We jack up, but he keeps us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you keep us. And we thank you that as we confess correctly, we're only stating who you are. You are indeed the Christ, Son of the living God. We praise you this morning, Jesus. Amen.